This episode is dedicated to Dan, Broken Mirror Alice, Tim Mercer, and Adam Rabe for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses. And most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is Sam. This is Raphael. And this is Fight Study. On today's fight study, we have MMA and pro wrestling writer, Rafael Garcia. Welcome to the show, Rafael. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you reaching out to get me on for today. Rafael, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into MMA and pro wrestling media? Yeah, sure. So it's, oh man, it's kind of a long winding story, but the media side of it really began back in 2006 when I graduated from college. I went to Elon University in North Carolina and I earned my degree in sports journalism. After that, I started bouncing around for some smaller newspapers in the South at the time. Then I ended up at ESPN where I've Ended up in the in the stats and research department where we were doing a lot of research on different aspects of sports and mixed martial arts came up. Now, prior to all of that, I had already been a fan of, of MMA and pro wrestling since I was probably eight, nine years old. I, I remember watching MMA at a very, very young age, watching it by accident because of my connection to pro wrestling. And when it came full circle, being at ESPN, they were looking for someone to really fall into those um, areas when it came to researching those sports. So I actually started a lot of that work that they're still doing to today in the, in some in some different aspects. But the research the research side of that, like the uh, the stats um, the stats tracking and all that that you see going on in at ESPN today, that really kind of started with some of the work that I did back after college. I would probably say in about two thousand eight or so. And then after that, I ended up freelancing a lot around for different outlets. And I've been doing that for pretty much the last 12, 15 years or so, it seems like now. So you weren't necessarily trying to get into MMA. It was more like you were already interested in it. And then just timing wise, as you graduated college and were working for ESPN, MMA was really like emerging as more of a mainstream sport that ESPN even wanted to cover. That's exactly right. I think the first show that we did was where Brock Lesnar and Frank Mir had their rematch, I believe. 
and GSP and Thiago Alves was on that card as well, too. That was the first one that we ever did from a research standpoint at ESPN. And that was like the first time we sat down and came up with a strategy. How are we, how are we going to cover this event? What are we looking for? So that's really where it, uh, it kicked off. And at that point in time, I had already been watching. And for years, I grew up wrestling in high school. I, I uh, did a little bit of coaching in college and right after school, too. So I was pretty much well-versed in that space. Now, as somebody who covers both pro wrestling and MMA, that also means then covering WWE and UFC, how would you compare WWE's business practices to the UFC's business practices? It's it's interesting. The thing about WWE and the UFC, mixed martial arts as a whole, is that it always stood out to me that people tried to deny their connection and they work so hard to act like they don't go hand in hand, when in reality, they're basically cousins. They've been Odd, bed, odd bedfellows for an extended amount of time. They've really been the same in the same space for years. And when we talk about the things that Vince McMahon has done as the biggest name in pro wrestling for generations, a lot of that stuff could be seen as a direct correlation to how Dana White runs his business as a leader within the, within the UFC. For example, if you look at how WWE really has a tight hold over their contractors from a likeness standpoint, where individuals almost sometimes lose the ability to use their real name when they leave the WWE, that they have their names in perpetuity. That's just like what the UFC has with a lot of the athletes that sign with their contracts. Once they sign, you're a part of that brand for the rest of your life and beyond that. Uh, so it's it's really they're they're really closely linked to each other from a business standpoint and from a lot of the issues that they have from both spaces as well too. They're really close. Uh, I, I call them odd bed, bedfellows where it's interesting. You see the fans often talk about each other as if they're not closely linked or not really similar, but a lot of the things between the two uh, industries are very closely aligned. And if you have a better understanding of both, it really helps you understand like none of this stuff is new. None of these things that we see, between Dana White and, and the fighters, especially around fighter pay. None of, the, none of these things are new because it happened in boxing. It happened in pro wrestling. It's happened across professional sports for so long. And being a fan and, and covering both that really helps me understand that. What about the merchandising side? Because if you are an athlete for the WWE, if people buy your shirts, you still get a cut of that. Whereas in the UFC, that's not necessarily guaranteed, right? That's 100% right. And that's what the situation around the the fight kits became such a controversial deal for the UFC athletes because they weren't guaranteed a cut of that. And in, even, even if you listen back to the way that Dana White talked about it, it almost seemed like he, he spoke of it as if he was doing the athletes a favor by allowing them to get a cut of any other gear that had their name on it. And pro wrestling is a little different. They're guaranteed a portion of the money based off of the merch that they sell. That's why someone like a um, like a Brock Lesnar, for example, a big name who may move a lot of items, move a lot of shirts over the over the span of of his career, he's guaranteed that money. So it's it's, it's imperative for him to kind of have that in his back pocket where some smaller groups may not necessarily have that same opportunity. They may only have like one or two t-shirts or something like that, so they don't get as much of a payday, but they're still guaranteed that money regardless of what sales and regardless of how much sales for them. So then this is why a lot of fighters seem like they treat 
going from the UFC to the WWE as kind of a graduation? You know, it's interesting because I've I actually had this conversation with Gerald Harris not too long ago when he was looking to get signed. Um, and I asked him, you know, why don't you go into professional wrestling? Like you have the look, you have the size, you could you could do that. And you obviously won't have to deal with the physical toll that comes from actually preparing for a fight. And he actually countered that that the biggest a deterrent for him in that conversation was the fact that he's a father and, and, and the, the travel schedule would keep him away from his daughter. So it really depends from an athlete to athlete standpoint on whether it's an upgrade or a downgrade. Uh, from a financial standpoint, I, it definitely seems like more of an upgrade from an athlete if they were to leave mixed martial arts and go into professional wrestling. I mean, the money is, uh, is, is there. You see what Gable Stevenson, uh, Gable Stevenson's been saying about uh, the UFC and WWE since winning his gold medal that he's not going to basically kowtow to whatever Dana White says he wants to pay him. He's he's basically saying this is what I'm valued at and this is what I'm expecting. And you see how that conversation is already going differently than it would with any other any other fighter. So it really depends. But uh, from a financial standpoint, there is there are benefits of moving over from MMA if you could get into the bigger levels of Pro wrestling. So even though they're both designated as independent contractors and they do similar type of sports entertainment, athletic performance, it sounds like they're still, like you said, bedfellows, there's overlap, but they're different. One is more demanding in schedule. One could be more financially lucrative and maybe give you a bigger cut of your own pie. That's 100% right. What about the two fan cultures? How do they compare to you? Oh, man. There again, I see a lot of similarities between the two. And it's amazing that the two groups do not see the likenesses within each other. But when you look at a lot of the things that are going on and you compare how they uh, they shape up across the two industries, it's really a lot of the same. So, for example, I'll use Dana White and Vince McMahon, as, as examples, they are probably the two biggest figureheads that everybody recognizes. In both spaces, their words are taken as gospel, even though there's so many different examples of them being promoters and not telling the full truth, flat out lying, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many different examples across history, a much bigger one for, for Vince McMahon because he's been around since the 70s or, or so. He's 72, I believe now. There's so many different examples of when they've lied to fans, lied to athletes, lied for various reasons, but the fan culture themselves embraces them in such a way that their words are the Bible and everything that they say is exactly how it went down. There's there's no questioning. And if it's someone, an athlete or a professional wrestler speaks out in opposite of that, they're blackballed, almost blackballed in a sense where you can't you can't take their word for it as opposed to taking someone who has a history of not telling you the truth. You see the same thing happening in both spaces and it's so familiar to me watching it go down that it's amazing that the two groups don't really understand each other more or, or even kind of embrace each other more because they're really the same. At the end of the day, fan culture is short for fanatic culture because that's exactly what it means and nothing really embodies that more than MMA and pro wrestling in my opinion. So then speaking more broadly, fan culture throughout whatever it is star wars to pro wrestling to mma it's all marks 
Yeah, in every way, shape, or form. I mean, you can't go too far to any space without people behaving in a way that is just like where we all should be adults here. What are we really talking about? Even if you play video games, there's people who will fight and argue with you all day about a PlayStation versus the N and Xbox. Like, why does that really matter how I spend my money to play the video games I, I decide to play? But still, every day you hear, the, you hear, you hear about, you see those arguments, and it's just the same. Star Wars, comic books, Marvel versus DC, sneakers, you have Nike versus Adidas, the same thing. Every day, every space where there's that competition, you see that same type of fan culture that is really just unnecessary. Now, since pro wrestling has been around for longer and MMA is more emergent, as the MMA fan base has grown, have you seen a change over time? I don't really know if it's if it's changed for like a positive or worse type of way over time. I will say that the emergence of um, social media and internet has played a a big part in that change towards the negative. Um, I can't say if it's always been this way when like days back when people were trading tapes and everything, if people were just as toxic back then as they are today. But um, what you see going on in MMA from a standpoint sometimes and pro wrestling as well makes it a little bit hard to watch more often than not that there's it would be great to live in a world where we can just watch the fights and everything else that happens in the vacuum of social media and everything outside of that didn't go on or you could somehow close your mind to that but unfortunately you see that and, and you see it um, especially from someone who like even as a I would say like a media member as, as myself who covers it on such a small scale, I see some of the blowback for saying things about, you know, facts about Conor McGregor or fact about Brock Lesnar or fact about Ronda Rousey, et cetera, et cetera. And that the blowback for that just isn't necessary. So I wouldn't necessarily say it's maybe gotten worse, but the emergence and the ability for social media to give everybody a voice for better or for worse has really hindered some of the development of both the MMA and pro wrestling fan bases. Speaking of Ronda Rousey, MMA has basically moved on from her. There isn't much of a fan base left. But in pro wrestling, does she have a pretty big fan base? I don't know, to be honest with you, because a part of that is the way she speaks about wrestling fans really does turn a lot of them off. She has not had a lot of a lot of good things to say about pro wrestling fans much the way that you saw her behavior towards the end of her ufc run um the leading into the holly home fight leading into the amanda nunez fight that leaked over into pro wrestling and she really has a disdain for fans especially if you're the type of fan that isn't the biggest fan of her work then she has no time and space for you and she and she speaks to fans if you look at her some of her social media things that she said over the past year or so she speaks about fans in a way where it's almost as if she's um she doesn't have a love for them as some other performers may do and that's interesting because her name gives her that stature that she doesn't really have to mince words she doesn't have to uh curtail her words in any way she performs she can really say whatever she wants but at the end of the day, I don't think she has the biggest love for fans as she does for professional wrestling in general. Now, since you train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu also, let me ask you what's worse, MMA culture or BJJ culture? I would have to say MMA culture at the highest level because you have more people that do not know what they're talking about, period. I would at least say within Jiu-Jitsu, you have people talking about something that they train and practice. 
practice every day. So they, they, you can still have a decent training partner that you may not necessarily agree with from a social political standpoint. But in the MMA space, you have people who have no idea what, what they're talking about saying anything that they want. For example, the Jake Paul Tyron Willie fight from last night. Uh, you, you see a lot of people talk. I just saw something on ESPN um, a minute before we hopped on the, on this on this chat today about whether or not the fight was rigged. And, and you look at that. We've been watching um, Woodley fight for how many years now? We know what his decline has looked like. So his performance in the ring is not shocking to anybody that's seen this man fight in the last five to six years. But if you have no idea what you're watching and you never have any kind of, and you're just new to MMA or new to combat sports as a whole, you can take away that, oh, this fight was rigged and he wasn't really trying to win because you have no idea what you're talking about. That's a little bit worse than just the toxicity overall within jujitsu, but they have their issues on a whole nother wide scale as well, too. I would add on to that, that I completely agree with what you said, but I would say for Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which also has a racism problem that we both know about, they have a unique issue with sexual assault and sexual abuse. Because if you go to a gym, the pro MMA class and regular people training, it's separated. Whereas with BJJ stars, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts, even like the top competitors, it's more permeable. You could train under them. So in that way, their ability to groom is much more common than you would see in MMA. In MMA, it does happen, but it would be from a coach. Whereas in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it could be the coach, it could be a higher belt. And also there's that built-in hierarchy based around belts, whereas MMA doesn't have belts. So I think because of all those things, and also because of the hazing culture within Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like belt whipping, it kind of conditions people and creates this unique set of problems that can create almost like this cult-like thing to appear in gyms that makes it more dangerous and risky for sexual abuse. Yeah, you're spot on there. And it really, I was really having a thought process over the weekend. And I know you've been following all the stories that have been coming out over the last two weeks or so. In reality, they're not new because everyone, majority of the women that have trained has seemed to have a similar story to a lot of the ones that we've been seeing coming out over the last two to three weeks or so. And it even, you know, within myself, I've been training since 2010. That's when I started. And yesterday I was thinking about some of the individuals I used to train under back when I first started. And like, I would remember there would be, there would be house parties where I would be invited to, like I didn't really go just because of where I was at the time, but you would hear about other students going and you're like, wait, you're 30, she's 17, 16. Why is she invited to this party like that you would have that thought but you wouldn't necessarily go the full way with it like what like what are they doing that they're inviting these teenagers in the teens class to these house parties for like what's really going on and i was really kind of having that thought process to myself and that was 10 years ago so seeing what's going what's going on what's coming out now no one should really be surprised about any of this and we talk a lot about in the uh the criminal justice system, we talk a lot about the blue wall silence within police officers where they don't say anything when they know things are going down and going down um, in an improper manner with police in marginalized communities. The same thing could be said about jujitsu when it comes to black belts basically staying silent when they see 
these perpetrators um, assaulting women, harassing women, harassing kids in their gyms on a daily basis, or they let the, or they quietly push them out just to see them go to another gym and get embraced there and, and complete the whole cycle all, all over again. They're very closely linked to each other. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. I, I, for my own self, I can't talk about the racial issues going on within martial arts and jujitsu and turn a blind eye to the issues with sexual uh, assault and harassment going on as well, too, because they're one in the same. They're people who are bullies at the highest levels, taking advantage of individuals that they think that they can take advantage of. And no one speaks up for those um, those marginalized voices that happens on both sides of, of the coin. And what we are seeing today shouldn't really surprise anyone. It, it, it's Even if this happens within your own gym, it shouldn't surprise you because it's so prevalent and it's so easy to intimidate those um, students. It's so easy to push them out without anyone turning a blind eye. And when it does happen, you look at gym leaders and they're silent about it. That's really the big conversation point that people are just 100% silent about it. And that's the biggest issue with it. Like, how do you see this going on? How do you know about this going on? And you just don't say anything for what purpose? I think that is, that's probably the biggest, other than the actual occurrence, occurrences of assault and, and harassment, the silence around them are, is, is, is the biggest concern for me. And I think that's why there's such an overlap between Brazilian jiu-jitsu and police culture and why so many police train Brazilian jiu-jitsu and why Brazilian jiu-jitsu caters to police is because they share the same silent, toxic honor culture that also has this toxic loyalty culture built into it. So the two are so similar because systems of oppression are very similar. You're 100% right there. And and it's unfortunate. So I understand oftentimes what these gym leaders are trying to do when they claim that they want to give police officers more instruction. I have a good friend who, um, someone I really care about, he's a good friend of mine, we we trained together for years, who has really embraced the idea of training police officers. And I get what he's trying to do, but there's a whole aspect of the conversation that is just missing from that. You can't have that training and feel like you're empowering police officers without having an honest conversation about what policing in black and brown communities looks like. If you can somehow, someone can figure out how to marry the two together and make that into a police culture training seminar, then it would be 100% on point and it would work. I think it would better serve the goal that they're trying to get. But the idea of just the answer to cops killing black and brown people is to teach them how to do chokes. I mean, you're giving them another way to kill people and you're giving them another way to kill people that they can actually probably be easier to get away with. So what are we really doing here? You can't address police racism without addressing racism. 100%. So let's talk about some recent news. CM Punk returned to pro wrestling and rather than going back to the WWE, it was AEW. Now, how big was this for people who might not follow pro wrestling that much? I'm going to use some numbers to show you how big this was. Okay, so CM Punk came back two Fridays ago, um, and that show had, I think it was 1.2 million people watched this the five minutes at the start of the show where he was on. About 1.2, almost 1.3 million people watched that portion of the show. 
That same show came back on a week later without CM Punk on it. And about 700,000 people watched that entire show. So that's what almost 500,000 people that tuned in just for him. This is, it's big news, not simply because of it's someone coming back, but it's an individual that people wanted to see come back for an extended amount of time, actually stepping back into the space and stepping back into a, in, into the space where they can best perform. Uh, the WWE wasn't the spot that was the best for him. He actually, he openly spoke about that um, when he returned two weeks ago. And it, it was clear that whatever was going on behind the scenes there wasn't what was best for him. As he talked about it, he said he was sick staying there and now he's healthy because he's somewhere else. And from my standpoint, I can fully support that. I, you can see his joy in being back in, in wrestling and being back in a space where he feels, I don't want to say safe, but he feels better appreciated for what he brings to the craft. I think that that's what's most important. I mean, this is huge. Uh, and you can see that just from the numbers standpoint, the number of people who have been watching the show and watching the content where he is on screen. I believe his return, um, the YouTube clip of it had almost 7 million views last time I checked. So he's a needle mover, whether people want to admit that or not, he's already really shown that. And it's bigger than when he tried to step into the octagon because no one really cared there. And the people that watch were probably watching just to see if he would fail or not. This is totally different. And I think that uh, he's going to do some big numbers and some big business for them in the future. Now, if there was no AEW, would he have returned? No. I can I can honestly say that if AEW was a, was not around, he would still. I think he's working on a television show right now. He has plenty of money. Right? He he doesn't need to come back. Who else might AEW sign? So right now, the two big names that that they've been linked to one was obviously CM Punk. The other is Daniel Bryan. And right now, it's really being rumored that Daniel Bryan seems to be uh, appearing at. All Out, which is their pay-per-view this coming Sunday in Chicago. And that's like signing Peyton Manning and Tom Brady at the same time to the same team, for lack of a better term. You're bringing in the two two of the best performers in North America at the same time. Or not necessarily, they may not necessarily be the best performers from a, their, in their prime standpoint, because they're both, I think Daniel Bryan's about 38. I think he may be a little bit older than that, actually. And, and CM Punk is in his 40s. So they're in their athletic standpoint, they're definitely well. They're definitely past their prime, but these are two guys who can still contribute in ways both on camera and off of camera with a lot of the the younger performers on screen. So they have a lot to offer, and that those are probably the two biggest names that they can really sign. They um, they're picking up some women as well. Um, Ruby Soho, her name is Ruby Riot. WWE, she's rumored to be signing with them, and a lot of people are expecting her to debut this coming Sunday as well. Too, she's a she's a big name, and it for you know I, I make a lot of sports analogies, but she's like the Scottie Pippen to whoever their Michael Jordan would be in the women's division. She could be that that, that type of roster member. So they are bringing in uh, some interesting names in the near future. There's still concerned about if they're getting too bloated and their inability to really be an inclusive roster, which I really have talked about on the podcast I, I do. And there's a lot of people really talking about that topic right now, but they are doing the best they can at breaking the people that wrestling fans want to see. 
What about rumors of WWE selling to NBC? I really see. Oh man, that, it's so hard because people are going back and forth on that. On one hand, it looks like they're trying to make the platform or make the show look, or not the show, the brand itself look as profitable as possible, which is what a major organization would do before a sale. But then at the end of the day, if you know wrestling, it's so hard to imagine professional wrestling without a McMahon in charge. Um, but if you look at all of the, I guess the, the way people have looked at Vince McMahon historically over the years and the way he kind of took the organization from his father, you almost wouldn't be surprised if he would take a step like this right before and at this portion of his life where he's in his like mid to late seventies, just because he can't out of spite for everybody else that's behind him, out of spite for his children and everybody else be behind him because this is what he built. And it's almost as if this is going to go down with me as well too. not necessarily go down if it was sold to a Disney or to an NBC or something like that. But it's hard to imagine WWE as an entity without a McMahon in charge, specifically a Vince McMahon. And as people really talk about it, it seems like his daughter, Stephanie is in line to really kind of take over once his time is done. But she has, she doesn't really speak about that too much. She doesn't openly say like, this is my, this is my baby to take on once he's gone. So I wouldn't be surprised if they sold. If they did sell, it would be a bigger story than when the UFC sold a couple of years ago, just because it would be a bigger shock, in my opinion, across both sports and entertainment. A bigger shock as in UFC has openly been wanting to sell to somebody bigger, whereas WWE has always been about buying up other companies and never wanting to sell. Correct. They're their end game at the end of the day has always been to stomp out all of the competition around them and to see them sell. If that is what comes into play, that would be a massive move that I don't think anybody would have, would have really predicted. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, it'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Let's talk about some recent fights. Cyril Gaon just beat Derek Lewis for the interim heavyweight belt. Now, Cyril Gaon has been on a fast rise, albeit because heavyweight is probably the weakest division, but also because he fights like he's not a heavyweight. Has he impressed you? Has he impressed me? Yes. Um, I... First, Cyril Gaon first caught my eye when he heel hooked. I can't remember who it was in one of his first UFC fights, just because it's a heavyweight playing the leg game, which is something you don't see at, in MMA at all. So that's really when he caught my uh, attention. Um, the thing about Cyril Gaon that that I'm not I'm not necessarily apprehensive about, but that I think MMA should be apprehensive about is the fact that his style 
he can beat Francis Ngannou and it will not be exciting as all, at all just because of the of of his technical abilities his footwork especially it will, it's going to be hard for Ngannou to land big shots on him early enough in the fight where he's able to put the horsepower behind to to knock him out in my opinion so he's been impressive to me but at the same time he fights in heavyweight and lord knows I cannot stand heavyweight MMA just because it, it's such a it's there's, there's a cream of the crop of like four or five guys. And then the rest of it is the absolute worst. So there is that to take into account as well too, but his technique from a ability to move, his ability to, to maintain distance, his ability to, to, to stay safe in a, in a enclosed space and enclosed fights like that. And he has grappling chops that no one really talks about because we don't see him have to employ that so much. So often he is really interesting to me, but I think that the UFC is going to find themselves in a situation where they're like, great, we have this guy who's a champion now. And he's so technically sound that his fights aren't as exciting as we would like them to be, but no one can be him. It's a problem that they've had with other dominant champions. Not that Cyril Gaon has proven himself to be a dominant champion yet, but they had this problem with GSP in his prime, Anderson Silva in his prime, John Jones in his prime, where the reason why they're so good is because they're able to pull fighters into their game. So they beat everybody the same way. It's like, regardless of the challenge, all the fights look the same. And it becomes like the strategic fight where they take very little damage and they control the tempo of the fight and they win every round. Not that they're not opportunistic. If there's a finish available, they'll take it. But otherwise, it's more like they beat them already in this chess game and they're going to beat everybody with the same strategy. That's exactly it. And over time, it's the same story over time. Next thing you know, they're being bad-mouthed by Dana White. They're being bad-mouthed by the fans. Then they're wanting more money. Then they're so-called fighting over money. It's the same cycle, year over or athlete over athlete, each and every time. So I think that we're headed for the same situation with with gone if, if we're not careful um, in that heavyweight division. What do you think about bantamweight Jose Aldo? He's he's 34 years old. First and foremost, that, that still blows my mind every time I see him fight. I think he's 34, 35 at the most. Any other sport, we would not be writing this guy off at that age. But I would, I would love to see him fight anyone at 135, anyone in the top five of that weight class because he keeps winning and he has proven that he deserves an opportunity to step into that ring or step into that cage and fight, not necessarily until the wheels fall off, but he's still performing. He's not really being blown out. I hate to say this because I'm a fan. I, I was a fan of Frankie Edgar early when I uh, first kind of really got in love and, and, and started following MMA as closely as I did, especially when I started covering it. But if you compare the way Frankie Edgar's last three to four fights have gone, compare that to the way, Jose Aldo's three to four fights, last fights have, have gone, and you can see a clear difference between the two. One guy's getting knocked out faster every time he steps in, in into the cage, while the other guy is winning fights, dominating fights, and he's and he's still showing new wrinkles to his game each time out. So with Aldo, I would love to see him at 135 against anyone. Now, something you and I talked about with Aldo were leg kicks and how to score leg kicks. Now he's more of a boxer who's really good at checking kicks. And on top of that, of course, he has like other types of weapons beyond that. With that said, in his fight with Pedro Munoz or anybody who kicks him, he is almost like 100% at checking kicks. As somebody who works on stats, 
how should we as fans consider that attack? So I'm, I like to equate the check kick conversation to what happens when someone throws a body kick that's intentionally thrown at the opponent's arms. It may, it's technically a blocked kick because if you're blocking your, your body from being uh, absorbing the uh, kick, but your arm is still taking damage. And you see that as a strategy that a lot of fighters do employ. I kick to the body in, intending on making you block just so that when it does connect, there's still some type of damage occurring. So with that in mind, when we look at the check kicks, I think it's important to kind of look at the fighter's reaction as they're taking them because it's slowly over time adding damage to the body. And with Jose Aldo, I think what makes it a little bit different in that last fight specifically is that, yes, he was he was both throwing. Um, he was he he didn't throw, as you mentioned, he didn't throw as, as many as people are ex- wanting him to, to throw. But the reaction after the kicks and after they continue to um I guess a mass is what we should really be talking about. Are they being used as a tactic to cause damage to that body or to, to that body part? Or are they, are they thrown with less intention than that? Um, and you can, and you can kind of tell the difference between the two. It's a little difficult in the moment sometimes, but you can definitely tell the difference between the two. I tend to look at the reaction to the person getting kicked and what their movement is like immediately after. Like if they're just, if they're having a hard time stepping back, if they immediately step back, if they immediately throw back, there's a couple of different indicators that you can see when determining how to kind of count, for lack of a better term, what type of leg kicks are doing damage and what type are. Now, what about when an attacker is throwing a leg kick, it's checked, and the person who threw the leg kick looked like they got hurt? How do you count that? We're still counting out. We're, I'm still looking at that as a um, as a if it it, it it depends on how it's being checked too as well. Like there's there's the the traditional type where you are basically raising your knee, putting on the boot, and you're stepping through the kick that way. But the ones where you check the kick by keeping your foot planted. And you let the kick hit your leg at a, at a, at an angle, kind of like the way that um, Chris Wyman got hurt with Uriah Hall, I believe it was in, in his last fight. Uriah Hall wasn't doing the traditional type of check, but his foot was still, was still connected with the floor when Wyman broke his his leg. So the contact was there. That was a scoring strike, but clearly the damage went one way and it went towards um, Wyman. So that's still technically a scoring strike, but the, the damage was on the on the a, a, attacker's end. If I throw a punch and I hit you square in the middle of the face and break my hand, that's still a scoring punch, but my hand is the one that's broken. That's a good way to compare it. One thing I want to add, though, is with commentators, I think they read too much into a fighter who switches stances because ever since Dominic Cruz and TJ Dillashaw, we went into the era of neo-footwork. Now, it's not as bad as it was back then, but it got absorbed into mainstream MMA strategy where a lot of younger fighters, they just switch stances now. And so they naturally just switch stances anyway. But if they so happen to get kicked before they switch stances, the commentators are all like, oh, well, that's why they switch stances. And it's like, with some people, yeah, obviously, because the way they reacted, they're hopping around. They can't plant their legs, so now they're switching stances. Or somebody who never switches stances. But it's like some people constantly switch stances. And going to your point about you got to look at how the person receiving the kick reacts, I don't think we could think of stance switches as like 
100% sign that they're hurt. Yes, you're 100% right there. And you mentioned the commentary aspect of it. I understand commentary in action is very hard. Um, doing the in-fight analysis and really breaking that down is a difficult job because of where you sit, what you're looking at, and what you see is often very different than what the people at home are watching. However, there has been a quality drop-off specifically within the UFC when it comes to commentary that does need to be talked about in these matters and is mainly Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier that aren't that are the problem childs of the of the two and that's unfortunate because they are two of the biggest voices in the space and in the in the industry so when they say something it it comes with more weight so just as as you were saying someone may change someone may take a let uh let kick change their stance just because that's what their strategy called for at the time. And everyone in their mom is talking about, oh, this person's hurt because they changed their uh, stance when that's not necessarily the case. So it's difficult for fight fans to maybe know what's going on because of what the commentary is saying. And that's kind of why we have to, I hate to say let it play out, but you have to let it play out more over the course of the fight before deeming someone to be, hurt someone to be damaged, someone to be on their way out, et cetera, et cetera. We, there's so many different examples of commentary teams talking about a fighter's a fight's over or a fighter's hurt or, or they're in a bad space and they come in and they turn around and win. Or that, not, you know, that isn't necessarily the case. Um, commentary as a whole has really kind of fallen off, especially within the UFC. Somebody who's been making a late career surge is Jared Cannonier. He recently beat Kelvin Gastelum. And then in the post-fight speech, he said he's broke and that's why he fights and that's why he'd rather not even wait for a title shot and fight again. What are your thoughts on that? Every time I see or hear one of those post-fight conversations, I always want to ask if that person signed their Project Spirit card. That's really what I want to say every single time. And more often than not, the answer seems to be no, because we see where Project Spearhead went. We see how that went by the wayside. These men and women know what they need to do if they're going to have some sort of say in that space. None of them are willing to take that stance. MMA will never have its own version of Kurt Flood like the MLB had, who basically changed the way athletes were able to negotiate for their salaries across all sports, not just baseball. MMA is not going to have that because the UFC is built on its ability to put fighters against each other, not just in the cage, but in the negotiating spaces as well, too. You saw the minute that uh, John Jones said that he wanted X amount of dollars to fight at, at, at heavyweight. Here comes Derek Lewis talking about he'll do it for less. As long as that's the situation, there's never going to be a space where fighters are paid their worth. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the words of Dana White being held as gospel because you see, quote unquote, fight fans arguing against the idea that fighters should be paid more. So he has a large, he being Dana White, has a large contingent of fight fans telling fighters to fight for less. And those individuals who get into the cage won't take the steps they need to, to as a collective unit to push the um, push the hands of the pocket, uh, push the hands that holds the uh, the pockets there. 
there's nothing they can do individually. He can get up there and and say whatever he wants to say about being broke. And Dana White can look in Dana White can look him in his face and say, "I don't care. You're going to fight for what I tell you to fight for," and he'll end up doing it. Now let's talk about his opponent, Kelvin Gastelum, who is one and five in his last six fights. Do you think he lost something after his fight with Israel Adesanya because he looked amazing and made Adesanya look human? Or do you think MMA has just moved past him? So Kelvin has been an interesting talking point for me and some other people because we've been asking if he has been coasting off of maybe one or two good performances early in his career. And I think that that's kind of more of the case than not. Um, when you look at his full resume of what he's been able to do, there's like, where are the standout points? Like you look at someone like a John Fitch, for example, John Fitch was never champion. He was always like a number two or three guy, but he had a number of key victories across his resume before leaving the UFC that reminded people that he's a threat in this division. Kelvin doesn't really have that. So he had his moment when the lights were shining the brightest. He Almost got the job done against um, Adesanya, but when he's not in that situation, he hasn't been able to perform. Maybe that fight did take a little bit out of him, and he didn't look as good as he as he did in that moment since. But there's also a, a need to talk about what his what his overall performance across his career has really looked like, and if we're looking at it through different colored glasses. And very recently, we had. Giga Chikadze beating Edson Barboza. What are your thoughts on the implications of him beating somebody like Edson Barboza? And did he show you something? Did he show you that he's championship level? So that was an important win because I know people don't like the word gatekeeper, but if you're going to fight for a title, Edson Barboza is one of the names of, some, of someone you have to beat. So seeing him defeat Edson and do it pretty handily the way he did, it really gives you, okay, this is someone we need to be thinking about at 145 pounds. He should be in a perfect world, not the UFC booking world. He should be one, maybe two at tops, more fights away from a title shot, depending on how things shake out at the very top. But yeah, he is a, a title contender in my eyes. In that fight, especially against somebody like Edson, who kind of like Jose Aldo is still able to bring new wrinkles to his game, and he's also in a new weight division and has looked really good here. Did Chikase answer any questions for you that you had about him? So for me, the biggest thing that really stood out to me was the fact that he was able to perform when the lights were shining the brightest. As we were just talking about Kelvin um, Gastelum there, his when... He fights down to the level of some of, of situations where he could perform better than it looks like he should be doing at the time. On Saturday, Jigga, God, I can't, I, I hate saying anyone's name wrong, but I know I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. He performed well when the lights were on, the brightest. That was his biggest opponent in a main event um, on ESPN. And he went out there and he did what he needed to do. So he, was in control of his own destiny, as they say about playoff teams, and he performed well there. All the other stuff that's going to go on outside of that is really out of his control. And for me, that was really kind of the most important thing. How is he going to perform 
on Saturday when, when he was in a main event where people are tuning in specifically to watch him perform. And, I, and he went out there and answered those questions. So it's kind of like the example we see often in wrestling or Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I would even assume it happens also in judo or any type of combat sports where it's one-on-one, where sometimes the best person in the gym isn't always the best person in tournaments or even gets the best results. It's sometimes the person who's able to perform at the same level with the same ease as they would at their home gym. And often those are the best performers, or sometimes they perform even better under those circumstances. So I guess when we get to the top five of any weight division, then if any of them can beat each other, as a lot of people like to say, then it's really about who comes out and performs. I just wanted to clarify for listeners, it's not all about technique. A lot of these MMA shows, they do a lot of this analysis about like the metagame, what's going on with their footwork or this or that. But there is something about being able to perform the same way you do at home in your gym, on the tournament mats or in the match. Yeah, that's really a thing. Uh, I've always heard the term workout warriors as the men and women who look great in the gym. They look great on paper. They look good when they're training at their home gym or et cetera, et cetera. But when they get out there to actually compete, they fold. I've been that individual before in the past as well, too. So it, it, it's a real thing. And in MMA, it's especially important within the UFC because one loss and you could be well outside of the way of, of a title shot and life-changing money for the rest of your career. Uh, we see how wins and losses don't really matter as much as you think that they would in 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 the UFC as a whole. So you have to be able to get out there and, and perform when people are expecting you, when you're kind of put in that situation to have a breakthrough moment. That's probably that's just as important as everything else within the game, in my opinion. Some people you see that 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 they can do that. And then others that they um that they can't and that they struggle in that space. So that 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 is a piece that really sets people apart um, when they're in their fighting. Yeah, it's not a realization a lot of casual fans or even hardcore fans might make because if they've never competed in anything combat sports related, they might not know. It's not an observation I even made automatically. A coach had to tell me it was in high school wrestling. We go to a tournament. I lose my first match. It's over, and this other kid that I always beat in practice keeps going on, right? And I asked my coach, what's going on? How did so-and-so go so far and I lose right away? And my coach said, because that person, so-and-so, he's competing at 100% the same level as he's at at practice, where he said, you are competing at 50% of who you are in practice. And it's something actually like, maybe like you, I've struggled with not just in wrestling, but other martial arts, whether it was striking arts or Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Even in tournaments that I've won, I've always had a hard time competing at the same level that I show in the practice room. Because if I'm honest with myself and I listen to my mental chatter, I do freak out. I freak out every time I compete and haven't competed for like 30 years, it's something that I've never been able to get over. Oh, it's definitely a real thing. Um, I've, I've struggled with that as well, too. I was literally just talking to a friend of mine who she competes, it seems like, on a monthly basis. And every month we have the same conversation about the nerves and the 
the angst that she gets as she's heading to compete this weekend at Penn's. So it's a real thing. It's, it's something that does not go away. I personally don't think it ever goes away. Just the way that you manage it kind of evolves over time as you better embrace it and you better understand that this is going to happen every match around this time. What is our feeling X, Y, and Z and how I manage that is really going to help depend on how I compete or, or so. It's never going anywhere. And I think that there's some people that just know how to manage it better. Now let's talk about the most important thing here because last night we had Jake Paul versus Tyron Woodley. And I think this is a fight that a lot of people just brushed off. And everybody in MMA was like, this is a joke. I'm not going to care. I'm not going to care. And for fans, they're just like, Woodley has let me down too many times. I'm not going to care. I'm not going to get emotionally invested. And then something switched, even for me. In the past seven days leading up to the fight, all of a sudden, everybody I knew was invested. Rafael, give me your thoughts about this fight, especially the performances of both athletes, if we can call Jake Paul an athlete. I'm actually going to hit you with, with a shocker here, Sam. I didn't watch it at all. Um, I made it a point to not watch, not necessarily made it a point out of spite, but as I said earlier, I've been watching Tyron over Tyron goodness, um, over the last what five to ten years that he's been in the UFC, so I know what to kind of expect from him. The only thing I was interested in on this card was uh, um, Amanda Serrano and 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 seeing her performance, and I and I've seen enough of that fight since it's already um, occurred, but. I was interested in watching this and from what I have seen from like the video clips and, and some of the highlights is what we, is what we should have expected. Right. At, at this point in time, you have one guy who's 39, another who's what, 26, the bigger guy, younger guy. He's um, not as experienced. He's more experienced in boxing, but maybe not in, as experienced in combat sports as a whole. So, and then looking at the other Paul brother fights, this is kind of what we should have expected, right? Uh, I don't understand why a lot of people are really kind of surprised about the outcome from the whole situation. But in, in my opinion, like I said, I didn't order it. I wasn't going to be enticed in doing so. It, it, it was interesting to me, though, that a lot of people, you were right, a lot of people did suddenly get invested within that last week. I um, was asked by a lot of people who... I know for a fact don't have any interest in combat sports, whether or not if I was watching, if I wanted to come over and watch the the fight last night. And that really kind of catches me off guard. You really only saw that around the times of when Connor's fighting, when Ronda was fighting, maybe every now and then when Brock was fighting as, as well. But outside of that, you never really saw that too much Floyd and, and Floyd Mayweather as well too. So that, was pretty surprising, but everything else around that, nothing really caught me off guard about this fight. So you already addressed this at the top of the show, but the fight went exactly like you thought, which is why you didn't order it, you know, from Wonder Boy to Usman, you know, somebody DM me saying, I've been waiting for Tyron Woodley to pull the trigger since Usman, <laughs> right? So for people who've been following MMA and watching Woodley, this is nothing new. So then... It must have surprised you when people are so shocked by the result of Woodley being Woodley that a huge amount of chatter online is that this was a work because it was that unfathomable for them to see Woodley being so low volume and constantly waiting. Yeah, no one should be, no one should be surprised at all. Um, and that if you think this fight was a work, 
that shows you've never watched Tyron fight at any point in time, period. Because especially in the last five years or so, because you know that this is how he fights now. I mean, he hasn't been that guy to go in and be aggressive, throwing those types of strikes since, what, Bobby Lawler, maybe? And how many years ago was that? So no one should be surprised if you've been watching him perform and you've been watching how he fights. So at the end of the day, it's you get what you paid for, and that's exactly what you pay for. You pay for a guy who has zero professional boxing matches to fight a guy who has three, four maybe, and none against actual boxers. So what are we really doing here at, at, at the end of the day? Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, the pomp and circumstance gets people talking, and maybe hopefully um, someone watches Amanda Serrano fight again in the future. Someone watches um, Tommy Fury fight, fight again in the future. Hopefully that happens. But if you ordered this with the idea of seeing some type of boxing showcase at the top of the card, then you got jobbed. You're a mark. Yeah. <laughs> So somebody who knows their way around combat sports and pro wrestling, then I think you're the perfect person to answer this question. Celebrity boxing, which is the vogue right now. Is there an end in sight or is this going to just continue? I think there's an end in sight. I don't know when it is, but there's an end in sight because it's it's only he has to continue to fight people that he can beat and people who can generate enough of buzz to get some interest around the fight itself. I saw uh, some news a little while ago that Jorge Masvidal is asking to fight Jake Paul. Well, first and foremost, we know Jorge Masvidal isn't going to be able to fight Jake Paul because he's contracted to the UFC. Second, we know there's no way in, in, on earth they will let him take that fight against someone who actually throws hands the way Jorge does. So that's out. He's not going to fight someone that is a true threat to beating him. So how long does it it stick around? I could see it sticking around for maybe a couple more years, to be honest. But the number of bodies that he can fight is going, they're they're going to run out at some point in time. And he's going, if he really wants to be a boxer at some point in time, he's going to have to really kind of figure that piece out. But there's going to be a shelf life to this because no one else can really reinvent what he's doing here. But you forgot to mention Bart Gunn, the winner of the Brawl for All. <laughs> That's the name I haven't seen thrown around yet as a possible opponent. And I would even say Brawl for All was the original version of this. It was. I mean, and look how that played out for him. He ended up walking in there with freaking Butter Bean and getting his head knocked off. And we never saw him again. So... <laughs> And being somebody who covers pro wrestling, then, who are some wrestlers we should be watching? We, as in MMA fans who are interested in picking up pro wrestling again, or pro wrestling is very popular online and we just don't know where to start. So who are some people we should be paying attention to? Uh, That's a great question. So it's different from a pro wrestling standpoint because you can talk about the technical people who can actually put on a good match bell to bell and tell you a story that way. But the people who I think everybody should really watch are the names who are like characters as well, who really kind of draw a lot of attention in that space. So going with WWE first, I think the people who draw the biggest attention as being interesting characters, in my opinion, obviously the Roman Reigns character is great right now. Um, Seth Rollins is excellent too. 
Um, on the women's side of that, you have Bianca Belair. I think she's amazing. Um, she is a super athlete that I think that a lot of black and brown people can really get behind. Becky Lynch has returned, so she's interesting as well, too. If we flip over to AEW, um, obviously you have CM Punk's return. You have Kenny Omega, who's doing some of the best work uh, that any wrestler could be doing this year. You have a new individual. She's 100% new to professional wrestling. Her name is Jade Cargill. She um, looks like an action figure. like She's literally built like some of the G.I. Joes I had growing, growing up as a kid. That's just how um, much of an athlete she is. She has a great look to her, but she's um, really catching a lot of people's attention and turning a lot of heads. So she's someone to watch. Um, Britt Baker as well. She's a, a, a name that people are really getting behind. There's a lot of good wrestling that's out there uh, from an independent standpoint as well, too. But uh, it's just really kind of getting in where you fit in and finding what you can actually um, in, enjoy. But from an MMA standpoint, since MMA fans love the big personalities, like they love the Diaz brothers, they love Jorge Masvidal, Conor McGregor, and whoever else. There's really a lot of personality in pro wrestling that I think that they could get behind. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It was long overdue for a lot of us. A lot of the anti-racist in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, we got to know each other during the George Floyd protests, I think. That was also a time where it was really made clear where everyone stood in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but also in mixed martial arts and just martial arts, period. I think the sad fact that it wasn't a huge group of us made us all get to know each other better. So it's really good to be able to finally get you on the show and talk to you on the podcast, Rafael. No, you're 100% right. And I really thank you for having me on as well, too. It's It was sad seeing that you found out where everybody stood last year. And you either found out where they stood by the ignorance that was coming out of their mouth or out of their fingers on social media, or the fact that they stood by and said nothing, which is just as bad in my opinion. So yeah, last year was really like eye-opening when it came to uh, where this sport stands when it comes to equality and injustice. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Of course. The best and easiest way to find me is on social media at rgarcia underscore sports. That's in both Instagram and Twitter. Everything I do is usually promoted across both of those channels. So if you're looking for me, check me out there. And that is the easiest spot to find. Cool. I'll put that all in the show notes. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you for having me on the show. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse, hitting with the left. <laughs>
Southpaws. Sam. Paul. Southpaw. Southpaw. Southpaw.